and welcome to this edition of That They Might Know, a podcast dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. I am your host, Dr. William Mazella, and our teacher is my friend and brother in the Lord, Joe Durso. After enjoying this discussion of God's Word, if you are seeking discipleship or biblical counseling, please email us. Now for today's message. Dear Heavenly Father, I do thank you for the gospel. I thank you, Lord, that you sent your Son, you devised this plan. You are the eternal God. You are the one who is from forever. We can't conceive of your greatness. And on top of that, you're righteous and holy and true. There's no lie found in you. It's all goodness. Lord, we look at the world and we say, how can that be? But you have a plan. And you're bringing about in that plan the knowledge of good and evil. Righteousness and wickedness. And in the end, it will be brought all to the place where it should be. And I I praise you, Lord, for this uh, book that we're looking at, this letter from John, the first one, and the truths that are contained in those five chapters. And we pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes and our hearts to this, this difference between assurance of salvation and assumption. Assuming is just so deadly to the human soul in this respect. I just pray, Lord, that it would be clear as to what your word says. I ask these things for your honor and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're looking in this episode, which is episode 49, 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 to 5, as our f- main focus. Let me read 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 to 6, actually, I'm sorry. No, it's 1 to 5. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. By this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him, and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever follows his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected, made complete. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says that he remains in him ought himself also walk to walk just as he walked. And that's 1 John chapter 2, verses 3. Well, that's verses 1 through 6. So how, let me ask this question as we begin. How did the church at one time view uh, or recognize authentic Christians? How did churches in history recognize authentic Christians? We know that the Antichrist is in the world, and we know throughout the scripture that there are warnings given, as in uh, the last chapter of Acts, where Paul is warning his children, that uh, the day would come when ravenous wolves would come in and not spare the church. And Jesus said, beware of wolves in sheep's clothing, Matthew chapter 7. So everything isn't perfect in the church, and it was never said it would be. There's dangers in the church. And one of the dangers is the danger of people coming to a profession of faith that they may think is real, other people may think is real, and it's not. So for that reason, I'm asking this question. How do churches in history recognize authentic Christian? Let me me begin by remembering the days when behavior was the test of salvation and not saying a prayer, walking an aisle, or filling out a prayer card. No, it was behavior. During the great days of the Great Awakening, which uh, began in 1730 in England and then 
17, around 1740 in America, when um, George Whitfield came preaching the gospel with the power of an apostle Paul. If you don't know the story of him, I would recommend, recommend two volumes to start. Uh, George Whitfield by Dalimore. Uh, just great, great read. And during those days of the Great Awakening, uh, leaders in the church would interview people to assess if their professions were authentic or not. Was there a transformation that was, could be seen? Was there fruit in their lives? Was there a change? And if not, if they, if they saw what recognized as true Christians then or authentic, then they would give them a coin and that coin would allow them to partake of the Lord's Supper. Now, I understand when I say things like this, by today's standard, people will be mocking and people would be judging and it's judging. Uh, but this was during a time when God poured out his spirit in revival. If you don't know what that means, do some reading. Uh, go on the web, look at uh, Revival on the Isle of Lewis, listen to it. Some of it may sound a little um, not normal by our standards. That doesn't mean we're right and they're wrong automatically. Uh, we need to have a humble spirit. I mean, you can read the Puritans, you can read the Reformers, you know, things they did. And, you know, always coming to the automatic conclusion that we know better because we're further down the line is pride, um, most definitely. We're not always right. And sometimes we can learn from either, even Christians from other ages. So that's how they did things then. Uh, in countries where governments are hostile to Christianity, the question of authenticity is laid to rest by a person risking their very life for the gospel's sake. I mean, you know, I guess it's possible for a person to lay down their life thinking they're doing right, but more often than not, a person is authentic when they're willing to die for Jesus Christ. The New Testament is filled with statements that lead us to question our faith. You know, today, again, by and far, never supposed to question your faith because if you question your faith, you know you're going to somehow hurt your faith and you're going to lose it. And you know, But if that's the case, then you know, why does the New Testament have so many references? Let's think about it for a minute. Test yourself to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail the test? That's Paul reading, writing to the Corinthians. Prior to Paul's admonition to test themselves, he gave divine power in the professor as proof. He said, quote, For indeed he was crucified because of weakness, yet he lives because of the power of God. We too are weak in him, yet we live with him because of the power of God directed toward you. So they were giving their life for the Corinthians, and he was saying, as inspired by the Holy Spirit, that they were living by the power of God. That's a test. If there's no power of God, it's a reason to question. Jesus, for a good while before the cross, told his disciples he was going to die. One disciple was fake, a fake, and betrayed Jesus as a result. And make no mistake, the general epistles, that's from James right through Jude at the end um, of, towards the end of the New Testament leading up to Revelation, all had a keen understanding about Judas, who walked with them for three years. They had no reason to question whatsoever that he wasn't real. And he ended up selling Jesus for money, going out hanging himself, and either the rope broke or the branch, and he fell, and his, bur his belly burst open. And it's a, it's a horrible situation of a person who looked like he was an authentic Christian, at least to disciples, who changed radically after that time and after they were sent out as apostles. And when they write their epistles, they're always questioning, always. Jesus questioned Peter's salvation when he said to him after his denial, Peter, do you love me sacrificially? Agape love. 
feed my sheep, he said three times. Three times he questioned, and he said this. The last time he said to Peter, do you have affection for me? Do you have filial love for me? As if to say, do you even have affection for me? He consoled him each time by saying, tend my lambs, but he questioned him all the same. You know, do we question ourselves? Do we question others in a humble, loving way? Colossians 1, and 23 says this, Yet he has now reconciled you in his body of flesh through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Verse 23, If indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, and not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. A person who shifts is apostate, which means one who falls away from the faith. There's a question in Colossians, if indeed. Make no mistake that, that if there is presuming that it will take place if the conditions are, are right as set up in the verse. And these conditions are that you be firmly established, steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. Otherwise, it's not. It's if, if that's not true, if that doesn't take place, what apostate? Romans 8, 16 and 17 says, The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. You know, Paul adds in his letter to Timothy, 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, that doesn't mean we have to run out and find a place to get persecuted. It means when persecution comes, we don't run away from it. We're not going to do everything we can not to be rejected by others. That's not the pathway and for that reason, that's why Christians get soft. They turn, we need to be loving. And if a person rejects what we say, we feel like we're not loving. That's not what this is saying here. Suffering will come. They rejected me, Jesus said, they will reject you. So rejection is not a cue. It's not a clue. It's not evidence that we're not being loving necessarily. Of course, we could say things that need not be said, but automatically that people reject the gospel doesn't mean that we're not loving. Romans 8, 9, and 11 through 11. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Make no mistake, all these ifs are there as this. Paul was not assuming about his readers. I mean, often he gives praise and he acknowledges in, in, in the proper way when there's fruit that's being shown, he's right there to bless them and encourage them with the fruit, but also at the same time, he is not afraid to raise the doubt that unless these conditions are met, it's possible that you're not a Christian. If, and they put an if, and if indeed. Differentiating the authentic from the counterfeit Christian is something we want to look at. Now, in 1 John, I'm going to just st state these, and all of these can be found within the five chapters of, of this first letter of John. Loving John. Um, the attributes of an authentic follower of Jesus Christ right here from 1 John. They have a personal knowledge of Jesus Christ. They walk in the light. They tell the truth. They love the brethren. They continually confess sin. They are not self-deceived. They walk as Jesus walked. They keep the Lord's commands. They experience the forgiveness of God, overcome the evil one, and know the Father. They do not love the world 
nor the things of the world. They receive an anointing from the Holy One. These are all attributes of an authentic follower of Jesus Christ. They remain in Christ. They know the truth and make every effort to avoid being deceived. They do not sin continually. They practice righteousness. They do not sin as a way of life. They are born of God and do not sin habitually. They are hated by the world. They seek to lay down their life for the brethren. They do not hate their brothers. They possess a clear conscience and receive answers to prayer as a result. They test the spirit to see if they are from God, the spirits. They discern true prophets when they listen to his true message. They love God and are made complete in godly fellowship. They know they remain in God because of the Spirit and their testimony of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All born of God love one another and they overcome the world. They believe God and they do not lie under the power of the evil one. And those are attributes, according to John, of a person who is an authentic Christian, because he's concerned about that. He didn't want to see any more Judases, either in his time or the period, the last 2,000 years, that letter has been out there to read. In, first, in verse 1-6, John says this, If we say that we have fellowship with him, and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. If we say we have fellowship, and with him, and yet walk in the darkness, we lie. In 180, he says, if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. So, either we have not turned our knowledge into a way of life by putting it into practice, or the truth is not in us at all. Either way, they both amount to the same thing. I mean, John in our passage says this, that's the one we're looking at today in chapter 2. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. <laughs> now, that statement, if I were to say that statement to some people, or if they were to hear me to say that statement, then, wow, that wasn't a loving thing to say. But G John put it into writing for the world to read, and it's been there for 2,000 years by the inspiration of God. John, and, and he didn't necessarily know he was being inspired and that word would be used that way. He was talking and God used it. I once heard a medical doctor, Martin Lloyd-Jones, say when preaching, if being amiable were the definition of love, then many of the New Testament men were not very loving, including our Lord Jesus Christ. And that is an accurate statement that he made. Certainly here, John could evoke someone to say, are you calling me a liar? People are very quick to say we are not perfect and we all sin. However, put a person in the position to defend the authenticity of their profession and they may become indignant. The, in verse 9, John places our salvation in jeopardy by saying, quote, the one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. You know, back to looking like we're in the light when in reality we're in the dark. He's saying something. He's saying that he's in the light. You know, it's not what we say that matters. It's what God believes. It's what God knows to be true. John, in the first century, reveals the depth of their ability to discern true and from the false, at least the apostles, and I'm sure many other leaders and people in the church. He didn't have, if, he didn't, if it was everyone believed that way, he wouldn't be writing this letter. But there was a discernment there. Certainly John had it, Peter, the apostles. Verse 19, he says, They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out, so that it would be shown that they, were, that they all are not of us. 
See, most people in churches would never make such a statement like that today. But godly men, men with discernment, not because they're perfect or better, they have the grace of God working in them, and they are able to make, by the grace of God, discerning. And you know, people can become brutal and critical, and, well, I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about being that way. I'm talking about being loving. And love does things like, what I'm talking about here, it questions out of love. Jesus questioned out of love. I have to believe John questioned out of love. John made a tight connection between Christian theology and a changed heart and a transformation of life. Verse 22, Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? And verse 24, If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. Another way of saying you will remain a Christian or reveal that you have been one from the beginning. Today, some will question some cults as if people could be saved in them when they virtually all reject Christ as being God, including the Catholic Church. I was raised Catholic, believe me, I know that when you mention that Jesus is God, they'll immediately say, not all, but many, the Son of God. Why are they saying Son of God? I've had this said to me so many times, as if, no, not God, Son of God. And they make a distinction between the Son of God and God. There's no distinction in, in the Bible about Jesus Christ being God. Just spend some time in John 5 and all the New Testament. Colossians 1, and on and on and on. Christ is proclaimed to be Almighty God. John 1, verse 29 If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. Practices in Greek are ongoing or progressive. John is speaking about practicing righteousness as a way of life, not perfection. Righteousness has become their way of life, the authentic Christian. Even though they may not be perfect, may struggle, may have times when they go to, you know, just sin and, and it's clutch, but they break free. You know, you knock a, a righteous man down seven times, Proverbs says, you know, there's no point to it because he's only going to get up again. And he's going to get up better than he was before. I'm adding that part. Much of Paul's letter is written in this way. And for the very reason of conveying the authentic Christian is being transformed by the power of God. Paul says it, it this way, But we all with unveiled face, looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. John fourteen fifteen said, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. This word in Greek is referring to a condition extending to its spin-off possibilities. Once again, that happen if the condition is actualized or is valid. So what Jesus is saying is the evidence of one's love for him is that he keeps his commandments. If the love you say you have for me is valid, and is being put into action, then you will keep my commandments. Another way of saying it, you will be enabled to keep my commandments. If our passage for today in verse 3, John tells us, by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. This is one of the ways we know. It's uh, subjective it looking inside and seeing transformation taking place within us, where once, you know, we did things, maybe our mouth was filthy, and we realize a filthy mouth is not honoring to God, so we, we correct our mouth. And in that process of change, we can say, why did I do that? Well, I did that because I, I love the Lord and because I appreciate what he did for me in saving me. And so, you know, by this we know we have come to know him. 
this transformation that takes place in our lives. To know Jesus to, is to come become, get in an intimate relationship with him, largely through him, through his word, which cannot be separated from an active and elongated prayer life, but, you know, that's, that's what we do. When John begins, he is introducing us to eternal life, and that was from the beginning. What was from the beginning? We went through that in a pre- previous uh podcast, Jesus praying his high priestly prayer, which is an intercessory prayer for those whom he is giving his life, in verse 3 said, and this is eternal life, that they might know you, the only wise God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. The eternal and divine life is in God and his son Jesus Christ, and the only way for a person to receive that life is to be joined to Jesus Christ. That our identity is in Christ, in reality. Not just a conceptual thing that's in our mind that I'm identified with Jesus, but something God does in placing us into the body of Christ. To be joined to the eternal life is to know you're joined and such a one will remain joined. That's why Jesus said by this you know that we are in him. The one who says that he remains in him would himself also to walk as he walked. So that brings us to the question of how did Jesus walk? I've made some references in this about the not necessarily best, amiable way to approach people. It was always in perfect love. Everything he did was perfect. But sometimes people need to be shaken out of their complacency. When a man is is walking into a burning building, I mean, you can just say, hey, maybe you shouldn't do that, or you can knock him to the ground. I mean, you can just walk into a burning building. Maybe you don't want to do that, maybe you do. I think the loving thing to do would prevent someone, if at all possible, you know, from doing something that would be horrible to themselves. In Luke 19, 1 through 10, let's look at Jesus to see how he walked. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through, and there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and he was rich. Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was and he was unable to do so due to the crowd because he was short in stature. So he ran on ahead, climbed up a sycamore tree in order to see him because he was about to pass through that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry, come down. For today I must stay at your house. And he hurried, came down, and received him joyfully. When the people saw this, they all began to complain, saying, He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. But Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I'm given to the poor. And if I have exhorted anything from anyone, I am giving back four times as much. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because he too is the son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. You know, Zacchaeus hears what's being said, which is something I'm sure he carried all his life. I mean, this is a man or part at least from the time he became a tax gatherer, which was one who was uh, a Jewish person who was working for Rome to collect taxes. And after he got what Rome wanted, the way he made his money was going over and aboard, over above board, and uh, extracting from them more, usually using people who were thugs to make sure that it happened. I mean, he's a small guy. He's not going to be doing any of the heavy lifting and and cruelty to people, but he would hire people who did. So you know that the Jewish people hated this guy. I'm not sure for how long, but they hated this guy, and he heard all this stuff all his life. And he had to have thugs to protect him, no doubt. But when they start to complain about Jesus, now this is a man who's up a tree, literally, and in his life, figuratively, he's up a tree. Jesus comes along and he's looking down at Jesus. Jesus is looking up at him. And Jesus, you know, come down. Come down 
to me. The, the God of the universe who descended to become like men. He looked up at Zacchaeus, hurry. I mean, he's not even, don't take your time. Come down here for today I must stay at your house. Your house. This is a man who's doing miracles. Obviously, Zacchaeus wants to see him for a reason. Why? I mean, is this guy real? Is he true? I'm hearing all these things about this man. I want to see who it is. So he hurried down. And Jesus received him joyfully. This thug, this thief, this man who takes money that doesn't belong to him legally in the hands of Rome. And so the the men, the people know who this man is, and they start talking. That's what people do. I mean, he's gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. No doubt the Pharisee is part of this conversation. It doesn't say that. It says the people. So it was a bunch of people, and they all began to p- complain about Jesus because he was in with, you know, that they had that mentality. You just don't associate with sinful people ever. You know, we understand there's Proverbs and, you know, Proverbs 1. And Solomon saying, do not associate with people who are going to go out and kill other people. There's even a biblical mandate for that in wisdom, but Jesus wasn't doing it to become part of them. I mean, this is a man who's preaching, eh, could go both ways, and healing and casting out demons, and saying things that were never heard before. This is a man, a loving man. But they choose, some did, to to think the worst. Few thought the very best. And so there is always a divide. But these men are thinking the worst, and, and, and Zacchaeus stopped. They stopped to complain. That word stop means to make a stand. Basically, what Zacchaeus did here was he took a stand for Jesus. He stood firm, steadfast. Wait a minute. I don't want to hear these kind of words about Jesus. There's their authenticity that we're looking for. And what does he say? He says, behold, Lord. He calls him Lord. Master in a master-slave relationship. Half of my possessions I am giving to the poor. There's guy kind of according to the law for how bad he was. And if I have exhorted anything from anyone, I'm given back four times as much over and above the law. Four times. Four times. He wanted the people to understand something that a transformation had taken place in his life. He felt it. He he understood it. And he just spurred it out. Right out of his mouth to let the people know, this isn't me anymore. Why? I don't want the name of Jesus being dragged down. I don't want this to fall on Jesus. And that's what we do. That's what authentic Christians do. We take a stand and we watch our life. And we're not perfect and we are sinners. And we know that we need to walk in the light as he himself is in the light. It's all on Jesus. I'm the light of the world. I mean, he is the light. And he's in the light. And when we become Christians, where does it go? On us, it does, but it reflects right back to him. People, they're looking at Jesus. And this man, Zacchaeus, no. And and it just lays it out. And what does Jesus say in turn? Today's salvation has come to this house. Based on what? Based on his profession of faith and his works. See all this money I've been making? I've I've got to get rid of it. This isn't my money. This is bad money. It's going to the poor. It's I'm giving it back. And Jesus said, salvation has come to this house. And he said it to Zacchaeus, and he said to everyone who was standing there. And he also added, because he too is a son of Abraham. He had the faith of Abraham. Abraham, make no mistake, Genesis 16 or 18, he's a man of faith. He's saved by faith. He's blessed because of his faith. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Why am I going to his house? Because he's lost, not because I want to gain, I want to join forces with him and rob people. That's not the plan. Let's look at another one from Luke chapter 14, verses 1 through 6, says this. It happened... 
that when he went into the house of one of the leaders of the Pharisees on the Sabbath to eat bread, they were watching him closely. And they were in front of him. In front of him was a man suffering from edema. And Jesus responded and said to the lawyers and Pharisees, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? I mean, he knew what was in their hearts and in their minds. He knew they were after him, and they knew the Sabbath was a big issue. They gotta, if they're going to nail him some way, they're not going to nail him because of the kind of life he's living or the message he's preaching. They're going to nail him because of something stupid like this. So Jesus responded and said to the Lord, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they kept silent. And he took hold of him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, which one of you will have a son or an ox fall into a well and will not immediately pull him up on the Sabbath? And they could offer no reply to this. He shut them up in public, in front of other people. This is what Jesus did. Is this not amiable? Is this not loving? And he did it in public. They've been contending. And everybody knows what's going on. And still, in public, he puts them in their place. Now, it takes godliness to do this. God's, I mean, Jesus is doing it in the context of healing a man. The evidence is there that he loved this man. So fighting against the evidence is the truth that is put out there in in a harsh way, in a sense. I know what you're thinking. I know it's in your heart. I mean, there's a multitude of times they did this with Jesus. He knew it was coming. He would have known it anyway. John 7, 36 through 50, this will be the last one we'll look at just to make sure clearly in our minds how Jesus walked, because that's left on us and how we had to walk. Quote, Now one of the Pharisees was requesting him to eat with him, and he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. This happened numerous times. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. Don't know what type of sinner she was. Uh, you can, we could guess at what kind it was, but we're not going to do that. And when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. And standing behind him, at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, which she probably had in a a bottle. She's not crying out the tears here. And that was custom to do things when people would be crying to save them for such a, a, a situation like this or others. And she wiped them with the hair of her head, and began kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. Now when the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. Now this is how Jesus replies to this sinner. And remember, he's speaking to himself the sinner. But Jesus knows the thoughts of people. Not a, not a man you want to lie to. And Jesus responded and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, say it, teacher. He's just, you know, he's, he knows what he thinks about Jesus. Uh, but he said, I say it, teacher. And it's how you can almost feel, you know, the, the sarcasm in his voice, the, te- the, the Pharisee. And Jesus goes on and says, a money lender had two debtors, the one had 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he canceled the debts of both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I assume the one for whom he canceled the greater debt. And he said to him, you have judged correctly. And turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, get that, he's turning to look at the woman as if to say, as he's speaking to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. Now, remember, nothing has been said openly. So he's basically showing him that he can read his mind. And he says, you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. She has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she has not stopped kissing my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, 
but she's anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason, I say to you, her sins, which are many, have, have been forgiven. He didn't minimize this woman's condition. He doesn't overlook it. He doesn't try to make it less. He doesn't try to justify her. He's not trying to stand up for her against this, this harsh Pharisee. For this reason, I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. For she loved much. But the one who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. And then those who were reclining at the table with him began saying to themselves, who is this man who who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. You know, the blind man in John chapter 9 You know, he's saying, like, since the beginning of time, when do we ever hear that a a man born blind was healed of his blindness? You know, he stood right up to the Pharisees. Another good example of a truly authentic Christian. Here, in this setting, they're questioning Jesus' validity of Jesus being God. Jesus said, while I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. Jesus did things and he said things that made very clear before Abraham was, I am. I mean, come on. You know the name for God that when Moses is standing at the burning bush, I am that I am. That's exactly what Jesus said. Time after time, he's giving, uh, he's giving the authenticity of his divinity. And he gives it by proof of healings on demand. What do you want me to do for you? We want our sight back. Boom, they're seeing again. How does this happen? But there they are, the Pharisees, and they're just denied, 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 deny. For this reason, I say to you, her sins are forgiven. But what's the, the lesson here? Is many have been forgiven, that's it, of her sins, For she loved much, but the one who is forgiven little loves little. Now, this is not saying people who have great sins and vast sins, and when they're forgiven, these people just love a lot. And then there's people who don't seem to do hardly anything wrong in their life, and then they come to a knowledge of Jesus Christ and they get saved, and they don't really show it. That's not what this is saying. How do I know that? Well, for I say to you, for this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much. She just poured out her love all over Jesus. This Pharisee who is a religionist, who at least outwardly had the show of being religious and godly and prayers and all of this, you know, there may have been, there's two kinds of people who are religious and, you know, one is f- who are fake. One who is just outwardly fake and inside a complete hypocrite. And he's just the worst kind. He's a thief and everything else and he tries to hide it. And then there's the people who really think they're religious and they're really godly. And they go through life and they just do the very best they can. At least so they think. And these people, either way, do not love much. What, why do I say that? Because for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And when you look at sin for what it really is, it is a hatred toward God. I mean, actually how we treat one another in the world, as bad as that is, and how it should never be done. And we should never lie and steal and murder. We should never curse. We should obey our parents. All of that's God's law and it should be kept 100%. Why? Because first, God says so. And second, the, the order of keeping the God's commandments are, are love is love. Love the first one. The Lord thy God with all thy mind, whole heart, soul, strength. And the second one, which is like it, love others as you love yourself. Love others. Put them first. You know how you take care of yourself. You're always looking out for yourself. No, wait. Look out for them first. This is the new kingdom. This is where life will be. For eternity, this is the way life will be. Don't look at yourself first. You look at God and you look at others. It's like There won't be any, I don't know if there'll be mirrors in heaven. 
know, I, I'm kidding. I don't know. But here's the fact is that it's about hatred for God. And God is so much more infinitely important than we are that even though we should be loving others, and I'm not saying we don't, and it's not important, I'm saying comparatively speaking, compared to how we are love God, that's insignificant. So when we look at sins in the world and we don't see God, all we see is how we treat one another, and then we start to figure out you know, who's the greatest sinner? We're starting in the wrong place. The way, where we start is how we think of, how we internally love or hate God, how it works out into our behavior, and how we then begin to treat others. But that's so secondary, so last compared to God. Do we love God? If we don't love God, we hate God. Jesus said, look, if, if you don't hate your mother and your father, your sister, your brother, your wife, your own life, you can't be my disciple. What a thing to say. Because he's saying, by comparison to how you love or me, how you treat others should be almost as hate by comparison. Not that we would ever treat anyone that way. He's never saying such a thing but by comparison. And the person who loves Jesus loves people more. That's what we've been saying here. What we're saying here is the working out of the fruit of a love for God is to love others. And love for self. I, because I love myself, will hold myself accountable for everything I wrong. That's walking in the light. And when I love others in the church and I come into the fellowship, I want to know how they're doing. I want to raise this level of knowledge that I have because I'm concerned about you, so I'm going to ask you, how are you doing? Are you walking with the Lord? Is everything good? How's your scripture reading? How are you praying? I mean, is your, is your love life for God good? Great, if it is. If it isn't, can I encourage you? Can I help you? And this is the fellowship within believers. We're concerned about one another. And so the one who sins much in their own mind, whose conscience is either hardened or beats them up all the time, because why? Well, because they treat other people bad, and they don't even really see God. They treat God like he's a distant cousin, a hated person in the family. They don't want to do anything to do with them. And they're going to go out and they're going to make false gods out of wood and whatever they want to make it out of. And that, that not to love God. This person does not. This, this does not love God at all. Because he doesn't even recognize their sins. His sins. Her sins. Mostly. The ones that are brought to the conscience. You know, they justify. We justify but the one who has been forgiven much, the one who has made their sins clear, starting with their relationship with God, that person loves much. Because when you become a Christian, sin just keeps coming up all over the place. And you can either deaden your conscience, you can harden your heart, or you can say, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, confess, confess, confess. And he begins to change and change and change and you turn into a different person. This is the lesson for today. Do we love God? Do we love Jesus Christ? Do we accept his word as the authority? I'm going through things that the church in general today just doesn't do, doesn't want to do. And I'm not saying, I'm just saying in general, not all. But before you run out there and say, oh, that's not me, really think hard about it. I mean, is this kind of reaction taking place in fellowship? Is there fellowship or is it go to church Sunday morning, an hour, don't talk to anybody, hear the message, yeah, I was blessed, go home blessed. And there's really no life between Christians. No, no fellowship, no partnership, you know, no love, for, no giving, no sharing, or little. These all give evidences one way or another. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. Thank you that your word is hard, but it is an authority. It speaks from God. It's your word. 
It's not the words of men. You use men as vessels, as tools. You, you, you change the, the king's heart. You make it go whichever way you want. You know, you, you change the disciples into apostles. You made them in what they were so that they could write the word the way you wanted it. It was inspired. Every word. It's what you do. We see ourselves as so independent and nothing could be further from the truth. We're always seeing things as if they're wrong. We have to be corrected by your word. There may be people today, Lord, who hear this and they're in a struggle. First of all, maybe they don't want to acknowledge that they in their church and their church is not really behaving this way. It's not really thinking their perspective is off. Their discernment about who is in and who isn't and the care for them is not where it needs to be. Lord, make your word the authority. All these passages we're looking at, all the evidence, make, make this the final authority. And if it's hard to change their mind, Lord, change their heart. Turn them in the right direction and, and make them, Lord, aware that they need to ask for that rather than fighting against the truth. I pray, dear Lord, that John's words from chapter 2 would sink deep into the heart as the word that it is, like a piercing sword to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit. And it might do what it does, bring to light the intentions of the heart, the motivations. And as we question ourselves as our conscience starts to get dirty seek the place where it can only get clean and that's only in the shed blood of jesus christ who cleanses away all sin who, who drops it in the depths of the sea who's, who separates it as far as east from the west that you will remember it no more lord these are your promises and they are great and I ask that my hearers today would hear them just that way, as a cleansing fountain of all the sins in our lives, and that we might walk in Christ with a clear conscience. I ask these things in Jesus' name for your honor and glory. Amen.